and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. I love the songs that we sing this morning, a little throwback to the uh, yesteryear as well as some that are a little bit more modern, but I hope you saw the, or noticed the theme and the, and the music this morning as we're singing and praising the Lord. We can only sing, It Is Well With My Soul, because of the old rugged cross and the fact that Jesus as Lord is also Messiah. And so he has to be your Lord, your Savior, in order for you to be able to say and to proclaim through song that it is well with my soul. I, I love that song so much, especially in the context of a Christian funeral. As a man or a woman who's been faithful in their life, who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and, and, and those who are coming to celebrate their life and celebrate the legacy of their life, that we could sing and proclaim a song of that person's life, that it was truly well with their soul, that they're standing in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so I love that song so much. This morning we're going to continue our study through the book of Nehemiah. Last week we began this looking there in the first three verses of the first chapter. This morning we're going to pick up and where we left off and finish this first chapter. We're going to be speaking to the subject of repentance. There's a long time ago, but there was a city that was saturated with travelers who had come to celebrate an annual feast. And the city was packed. The city had lots of visitors. And and those visitors had come to celebrate this feast and to, to enjoy all of the festivities that go along with such a festival. And so men and women and children had had traveled long distances from all the nations of the known world at that time to observe this religious holiday. And while there in the city, the city was teeming with visitors, but while all those visitors were there, 120 people had secluded themselves in an upper story of a high-rise building. And for the last six weeks, those 120 people who had secluded themselves in that upper story were praying and seeking the face of the Lord, but they had been on this spiritual roller coaster. You see, these 120 people had seen their leader killed. And then all of a sudden, that leader showed up in their midst once again. In fact, two women, one day, uh, as they went to the tomb where they thought he had been laid, they saw him outside the tomb there following his death. A couple guys also found themselves walking and talking along a road, talking about all the events that had taken place. And all of a sudden, they realized that the man that they'd been traveling with for, for a few miles was, in fact, their leader. Some had uh, all of a sudden an experience where he came into the room where they were staying and praying and eating. And and then some uh, on one morning had breakfast there on the side of the lake with their leader. Then after a period of days and even weeks there on the side of the mountain just before this leader ascended up into heaven, they had one final time with them. In fact, that leader told them to go back into the city and to stay there until what he had promised for many, many weeks and and even months would come to fruition. And so during that annual feast with the city full of visitors, the promise came. And suddenly a loud sound came from heaven and it rushed upon those 120 who were staying in that house. And, And tongues of fire began to rest upon each of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to proclaim and speak in all of the known languages of the people who were in the city for this annual feast. They began to speak of their leader. They began to talk about his sacrifice and the death that he had had there on the cross. And they began to speak in these known languages. And so all of these people began to hear this proclamation. 
Many of them were confused, as you can imagine. Many of them were amazed because of all that they were hearing and and even seeing. And some were astonished. And yet some mocked them. Considered them to be nothing more than drunk people. Then all of a sudden, Peter, who was the leader of the 120, stood up and he lifted his voice and he began to tell the growing group of people who were gathering, gathering around this group of 120 and hearing them speak in these known languages which they should not have been able to speak in. And so as the crowd was gathering, Peter stands up and he begins to voice and to tell them all about what the prophets had spoke of long ago, telling them how their leader who was once dead but now was all of a sudden alive, the one who had ascended back into heaven, he begins to proclaim to them how they had rejected this wonderful gift from heaven, this wonderful blessing into their life. They had murdered him. They had put him on the cross. He told them that this leader, his leader, was no longer dead, but he was alive. And not only was he alive, he's working in the lives of men. He told the people that he was Not only alive, not only a leader, but he was in fact the leader. He was Lord and Messiah. And I want to direct your attention to Acts chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. It will be on the screens for you. But in Acts chapter 2, we see the wonderful response of this people. All of these people who had gathered into this city, the city of Jerusalem, in this feast time, this festival time, as Peter proclaims to them all of what Jesus had done, the people respond in this way. This is what Luke says. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This morning, as we move into this second part of the first chapter of Nehemiah, we're going to be looking at repentance. And here in Acts chapter 2, as we've been looking at this story of the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit coming, we see repentance. You see, when the people there in Acts 2 heard and understood the good news of who Jesus is and all that he had done for them on the cross, when they heard the gospel message, their, their only response was, what shall we do? What is it we need to do? How should we respond to this? And Peter tells them to repent and to be baptized, to repent, and to be baptized. Repentance is a word that, yes, we use in the Christian church. It's a word that we talk about often, but I want to just tell us this morning that we don't talk about repentance enough. In fact, I'm not so sure that we truly understand repentance in 2018 evangelical America. I'm not so sure if we truly grasp what repentance is. I mean, what is repentance? Is it simply remorse? Is it you being and feeling sorry for what you've done? Is it you showing a little bit of penitence? What is repentance? What does it mean to repent in your life? Peter says repent and be baptized. And so what is repentance? Well, we could simply define it this way. Repentance is a change of mind. In many ways, remorse and regret are aspects of repentance, but what repentance does is it goes much further than simply feeling sorry for what you've done. Exemplifying some remorse for some actions you've taken. Repentance goes much further than that. You see, in a biblical sense, 
Repentance refers to a deeply seated and a thorough turning from self to God. Many times we talk about repentance being a 180 in your life. In other words, you're on the trail to do what you want to do. You're living for self. You're living for sin. And then as you understand the gospel, as you understand all that Jesus has done for you, you turn from sin and self and you do a 180 and you begin to live and to pursue God. So repentance is nothing more than absolute surrender to the purposes of God and to live in this awareness. See, it's an experience in which God is recognized as the most important fact, the most important person, the most important aspect of one's life. No longer living for self. You're no longer living for something this world has to offer, some, some, uh, something you want to be gratified with or, or, or experience in life. No, you're living for the God who created you for himself. The Jews here in Acts chapter 2 who were in Jerusalem for this feast were, as Peter was talking to them, and Luke tells us, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart by the gospel. In other words, it pierced, like Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God pierced in deep into their heart. It, it did some heart surgery into their lives. They began to see the sin that was there. And as they began to see the awful predicament that they were in, as they began to see the sin that was being exposed in their life, they saw and understood the shameful state of their lives. It's just like uh, Nehemiah's experience, as we looked at last week, there, as he hears the report from Hanani about the state of the Jews back in Jerusalem. It cut him to the heart. It exposed to him the shameful state that he and his people have been in all of these years. And he began to respond to that shameful state. The people here in Acts chapter 2, in response to the message that Peter had preached, what, is he, what do they do? They do just as Peter said. They repented of their sin. They surrendered themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. They turned from sin and self, and they turned to the Savior. And Luke tells us that on the back end of this whole situation, this whole scene here, as these people are hearing the gospel, some are mocking, many of them are listening, the Bible tells us that 3,000 of them responded in faith. 3,000 of them were added to the church that day. They said yes to Jesus and no to their sin. They said, I will repent of my sin and I will place my faith in Jesus Christ. In another city and in another era of time, there was a man named Nehemiah, this man that we've been looking at. Nehemiah was given this report about the condition of his countrymen and the condition of his homeland. You see, Nehemiah lived in that city of Persia by the name of Susa. And he served in the presence of King Artaxerxes. Hanani had told the people, uh, told him of the people who had returned to Jerusalem. And he told them that those people were in great trouble and in grave danger for their lives. We know the Jews have been in exile for 70 years. And we know the reason that they've been in exile is because of their rebellion against God. Their ancestors, generation after generation after generation, had said no to the word of God, no to the prophets of God. They had rejected and shunned God. And yet God had not rejected them. Yes, they were in bondage. Yes, they were in exile. Yes, they were under judgment. But God was still working in their midst. So now, even as they return to the Holy Land, the shame of their past still hung like a fog over their heads. In response to the shameful state of his people, Nehemiah did the only thing he could do. He repented. It's an amazing thing as you read through this passage 
the, the, the whole scenario of Nehemiah repenting of his own sins and those of his family, even though what he's heard from Hananiah and the other men who had come to give this report, he had heard about people in Jerusalem. But Nehemiah's response was, I must repent of my sin and of my house as well as repent of the sins of my people. He repents, he turns to the Lord, he, he proclaims to the Lord the shameful state of his people, and he repented. Look here in verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1. The Bible says, As soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that you would take these words that we read here in the latter part of Nehemiah 1. Lord, I pray that the cry of our heart would be just like Nehemiah's cry. That would be a, a prayer of repentance, a response of repentance. Lord Jesus, I pray that those who are walking at a guilty distance would lay their sin at the foot of the cross Believing in Jesus, believing in the forgiveness that was purchased there on the cross and receiving the forgiveness that you so long to give us. Lord Jesus, I pray for any man, woman, child, teenager who's outside of a relationship with Jesus. Lord, they may be religious, but religion will never be enough. May today be the day of salvation for them as they understand what it means to come by faith through repentance. Bless us, bless your word, speak to us, and give us an ear to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John Calvin once said, without hatred of sin and remorse for transgressions, no man will taste the grace of God. Without a hatred for your sin, without remorse for the transgressions that you've committed, no man will ever taste the grace of of God. What's John Calvin saying there? He's saying we got to be real with our sin. We need, to, uh, we need to acknowledge our sin in our life. We must hate our sin. It must cut us deep within our hearts. Otherwise, we'll never truly be able to experience and, and, and celebrate the grace of God in our life. We find both of these in Nehemiah's response to the Lord. He projected a strong hatred for sin as he prays here to the Lord for these four months. He projected a deep remorse for the sins and the transgressions and the, and the ways that the people of God have, have, have shunned the commandments of God. So this response of his that we have before us is an incredible blessing. And it is an asset to us as those who would seek to honor God and to please God and to seek God. 
So this morning, as we look at a repentant response, I want us to discover in his prayer, I believe we will discover in his prayer, several characteristics of God that reveal the why of our response. Last week, I think I opened with the fact that our children are always asking why, right? So sometimes we may come in on Sunday mornings and, and you hear the message, you hear the word of God, and you just may ask, why in the world is this important to me? Why do I need to do this in my life? I'm going to give you nine characteristics of God this morning, and it's going to give us the why we should re- repent of our sins. We're also going to learn what is involved in a repentant response. And then we're going to see some steps that we ought to take in order to respond in repentance. So first of all, let's, in, let's look at the why. And because I really do believe it's important to know the why of what we do. And so Nehemiah here responded in re- repentance. But why did he respond in repentance? Who and what is God like, in other words, and why do we need to repent? Let me give you nine characteristics of God that give us the reason or the why behind those questions. First characteristic Nehemiah shares with us as he prays to the Lord here is the fact that God, or He, is universally supreme. God is universally supreme. Here is Nehemiah bears his heart before the Lord as he's fasted and praying before the God of heaven, verse 4 tells us. We get this key characteristic of who God is. He is the God of heaven. Now where's Nehemiah here? He's in Susa, and his problem is in far off Jerusalem. But both cities, one of them is rich, one of them is poor. One of them is strong, the other is weak. One of those cities is proud, and the other city is broken. Both cities were like tiny specks of dust under the grand canopy of Almighty God. He is the God of heaven. He is universally supreme over all things. And so Nehemiah was deeply troubled, but he here affirmed his commitment to the God of heaven, knowing that life's bewildering adversities are all under his sovereign control. And this morning, we may have all kinds of issues in our life. We may have all kinds of sin in our life. And we may feel like God is in nowhere involved in us, has no power to intervene in our lives. But rest assured this morning, the God we serve is universally supreme. He sets up kings and he topples kings. He is in control of all things. And Nehemiah understood this. Even as he's serving at the hand of the greatest human king alive in the world at this time, he understands he serves a greater king. And this king is universally supreme. The second characteristic we see about God is that he is intimately present. So God is universally supreme over all things, and yet he's intimately present. Now, I believe in the Christian life that there are times where we understand and we acknowledge, yes, God is supreme over all things. I just don't feel his presence in my life intimately. Yes, he's over all things, but it's like I'm just a little bitty number. It's like he's the big government, and I'm just a social security number, and he really doesn't know what's going on in my life. Let me tell you this morning as your pastor, God knows exactly what is going on in your life. He is intimately present in your life. Look what he says here in verse 5 as he's praying to the Lord. He says, O Lord God of heaven. O Lord God of heaven. What is significant about that? Well, the word Lord here, Yahweh, is the covenant name of God. What Nehemiah here is doing is he's proclaiming that God has covenanted with his people. He is intimately present with his people. This is the name that God used when he called Abram to himself and says, I'm going to make of you a mighty nation through whom the nations of the world will be blessed. I am the God who is going to be intimately present with you. This morning, 
It may seem that God is out to lunch and God is distant. God has nothing to do with your life that he, you've never heard from him or haven't heard from him in a long time. Let me assure you this morning that the God who called Abram and the God who called Moses and the God who covenanted with David is still the same God who's intimately present within your life. He is the one who tabernacled with his people. And the Bible tells us that if you are in relationship with Christ, he is tabernacling with you. He has made his home in you. The reason we don't call this room a sanctuary It's because the sanctuary is in your heart, and as collective believers coming together, we are bringing the presence of God into this room. He is intimately present in our lives. Third characteristic is that he is great. Verse 5, O Lord, God of heaven, the great God. Nehemiah here knows that his God is almighty. Yes, he serves at the hand of the greatest king alive at that point, but he serves a greater king, an almighty king. And his power had been demonstrated and evident all throughout Israel's history. I mean, think about all that God had done. God is the one who reached down and touched Sarah so that she who was bearing at 90 years of age would give birth to a son, the son of promise, through whom the whole nation of Israel would come. This is the God who preserved Israel all through those 400 years as they were in bondage in in Egypt. He's the God who met Moses on the backside of the wilderness and sent him after 40 years uh, strained from Egypt back to Egypt to lead the people of God out of Egypt. He's the God who for 40 years led the people of God through the wilderness into the promised land. He's the God who set up David as king. God is great. He is the God who led the people and gave them victories. He gave Jehoshaphat a mighty victory there in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. He's the one with Jonah who turned his plight into a psalm of thanksgiving. He's the one who was with Daniel all through his adversities there in the lion's den. He was the one who was with Ezra and turned his mission into an incredible, incredible service of God. Nehemiah understood that God is great. He goes on to give us a fourth characteristic in this same verse, and he tells us that God is awesome. He says, O Lord God, the great and awesome God. Here Nehemiah enters enters the presence of an awesome God through prayer, and he understands that not only is God great and powerful and almighty, but he is also holy. He is a holy God. Reminiscent of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 as he comes into the presence of God. And what does he see? He sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filling the temple. He catches a glimpse of the Shekinah glory of Almighty God. And he understands that he's holy. What is Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I am undone. He sees his own sinfulness So here, Nehemiah acknowledges the holiness of God. This is the characteristics of of God that defines all other characteristics. It's just the holiness of God that defines or gives definition to us as mankind. It's the holiness of God which identifies us and exposes the sin in our life. Anytime we come into the presence of God, what happens is it exposes that part of us that's not like God. It exposes that part that's sinful and, and against God, that's rebellious. And the only thing that we can do is to repent. So when confronted by a holy God, we can't help but see sin for what it is, an offensive and rebellious act against God. There's a fifth characteristic that Nehemiah shares with us about God, and that is he is compassionate. As he continues to pour his heart out to the Lord, he acknowledges the fact that God is compassionate. He rejoices. Thank you. I thought I was doing pretty good. 
Thank you, Nick. He acknowledges that God, this holy God, is compassionate. Isn't it good to know that God is compassionate? The Bible tells us that God is long-suffering. He's compassionate toward us. He wishes that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so here, Nehemiah identifies his needs in the presence of a God of infinite grace who has made a covenant of love with his people. That's what he says in verse 5. He says, God, I'm acknowledging you. I'm beseeching you. I'm coming before you because I understand that you're a God who has made a covenant of love with us. You're a compassionate and gracious and loving God. But also he is a consistent God. God is consistent. God is not fickle. How many of us today are so fickle in our lives? We're fickle about everything. I mean, I think the, the way our culture is, it fosters this fickleness. We're never satisfied. We're always looking for the next thing. We're always looking to move on to something bigger and better, to, to, to keep our attention more. And yet God is never fickle. He has set his love upon you. He has set his affection upon you. And it never changes. God loves you this morning. His love for you is not fickle. I can remember when I was in college, all my buddies and I would sit around and kind of talk about life in the future. And we're kind of talking about who we might marry and, and who we're dating at this time. And we began to realize that we're kind of fickle. I mean, we'd be dating a girl for one week, and now we're not dating her the next week. And we say, man, we really like her. Or, or we'd be talking, you know, one of my buddies say, I really like this girl. And about a week later, even though he had told, us, told me that he thought that she was the one, and I go back, man, what's, how's it going with so-and-so? Ah, you know, I just broke up there, though. It didn't work, didn't work out. It wasn't who, she, who I thought she was going to be. Just fickle in our approach to life. Fickle in our affections. But God is not like that. His love is unchangeable. God is constant. God is consistent. God is reliable. He keeps his covenant of love. You see, if God were like us, when the people of Israel rebelled, he would have cut them out. He would have extinguished them. He would have exhausted his wrath upon them. Yes, he judged them, but his judgment was a judgment of love to refine them and to bring them back to a place of faithfulness and commitment. But his love never wavered. We learn a seventh characteristic, and that is he is vocal. Nehemiah tells us here that God is the one who keeps his covenant of love. With who? With those who keep his commandments. What's the big deal about commandments here? The fact that God has given us commandments tells us that God has spoken. You see, we serve a God who is unlike the deities of the people who lived around the Jews at this point. All of these surrounding nations serve these idols. They serve these idols of wood and stone or precious gold and things of that nature. All of these deities had characteristics, but none of them could do anything. They couldn't hear, they couldn't speak, they couldn't respond. The God of Israel, the God of this book, the God who spoke through his prophets and the angels is a God who is vocal. He has spoken. We have it right here before us. It's called the Word of God. It's called the Bible. It's a canon of Scripture. It is a finished Word. God has spoken to us. Thus, we don't have to wonder, what has God spoken or what does God require of me? God has laid it before us. It is clear. Thus, we must follow it. The God who has spoken throughout history for Nehemiah, he understood this God would not leave him without a direct word concerning his future. And so as he prays and bears his heart before the Lord, he rests in the fact that God has spoken. Now there's an eighth characteristic, and that is he is attentive. Nehemiah prayed that God's eyes and his ears would be attentive to his needs there in verse 6. See, it should be comforting to us to know that God, not only does he speak, not only is he vocal, but he listens. How many times do we just need somebody to listen to? 
You know, if your prayer time was less speaking on your part and more just listening, it'd probably be a lot better. The good news is, is God wants to hear from you, though. God wants you to speak to Him. God wants you to bear your heart before Him. God wants you to show and to share your struggles and your, your, your temptations. He wants you to talk with Him. He's attentive. He's listening. His ears are leaning in to you. He's not deaf like the idols of the nations who have ears but cannot hear. And so Nehemiah here, as he's praying, he's confident that not only was God able to help in his time of need, but God could also hear him in his time of need. Sometimes we wonder because we think God is so far off and so aloof that he can't hear us, but he can hear, and he's listening all the time. May we speak to him. The last characteristic that Nehemiah gives us as he prays before the Lord is that he is merciful. See, the reason Nehemiah is offering this prayer up to the Lord is because he knows and understands that he is addressing a merciful God. Look at verse 8. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. What is that word? We looked at it last week in Deuteronomy chapter 4. There, God says through Moses, if you will reject me, I will scatter you through the nations. But when you turn back to me, I will be there. And I will forgive you, I will heal you, I will restore you. It's a lot like Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. That's what Nehemiah is grabbing hold of here. He understands that God is merciful. So it doesn't matter how far you've strayed. It doesn't matter how great your sin is. It doesn't matter how far of a guilty distance you're walking behind the Lord today. God is merciful. He's listening. He's speaking. And he's calling you back to himself. So Nehemiah here. And his prayer is quietly reflecting before the Lord. He's listening and and contemplating the character of God. For four months he's praying to the Lord. Weeping and fasting and praying. This reflection intensified his awareness of unforgiven sin in his own life, in his family, as well as the nation. And it led him to respond in repentance. And so let me give you five characteristics of repentance. Characteristic number one. Contrition. You say, what in the world is contrition? That's not a word I use very often in my daily vocabulary. Well, let me explain from Psalm 51, verse 17, what contrition is. David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What does it mean to have a contrite heart? It's to be broken over your sin. It's to see your sin as God sees your sin. And Nehemiah here was overwhelmed by the rebelliousness of human sin. He hated the sin that he and his brethren had committed against God. He despised it in his life. He couldn't stand it. He detested it. It was gross to him. It was repugnant to him. He hated the sin, just as David hated his own sin. You see, in Psalm 51, what David is doing here is he's responding out of his own sin, out of his own brokenness. You know what Psalm 51 is, right? It's when David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, tried to cover it up by even murdering her own husband, and then he takes her into his own home, marries her, and has a son from her, and then a year later, finally, he comes to a confrontation with his own sin. And he responds with brokenness. He responds with humility. He responds in repentance. Nehemiah hated the sin of his people. 
He understood that it separated him from God. He understood that it separated his people from God. He understood that it disrupted them from God's desire and his blessing upon their lives. So contrition this morning is nothing more than the state of feeling remorseful and penitent. It's you understanding that your sin is an affront to God. And so in response to the reality of sin, Nehemiah here, what does he do? He weeps and he mourns and he prays and he fasts before God. Nehemiah in no way was flippant toward his sin. He was owning his sin. He was confessing his sin. It broke his heart. Why? Because it broke the heart of God. Contrition is a characteristic of repentance. There's a second characteristic, and that is humility. We see this in Nehemiah as well as in David. Nehemiah here humbled himself before God. He considered himself a servant to God in verse 6. As he's praying to the Lord, he reduces himself to nothing more than a servant. Nehemiah could have done something that we sometimes do. Stand before the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, I, I just want to confess that my, my idiot brothers, generations past, have sinned and rejected you, but I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like them at all. I'm a faithful person. I'm serving here in, in, in Persia. I'm trying to do my best. No, what does he do? He humbles himself and just falls before the Lord. He wasn't brash. He wasn't argumentative about his sin. He was simply humble before the Lord. And we must be humble in our repentance. A third characteristic is confession. Nehemiah here was honest about their sin. He made no attempt to excuse anyone. He made no attempt to excuse himself. He called the sin what it was, and he was honestly confessing it before the Lord. He confessed the sins of commission, and he confessed the sins of omission. Look there in the latter part of verse 6. He says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, that we have committed against you. Lord, I'm confessing those. I'm naming those. I'm owning those. I'm identifying those before you. Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules. What is he saying there? Lord, there's some things, yes, we have committed against you. There's some things that we've not actually committed. We just not followed your word. And so both sin of commission and the sin of omission. You know, to, no, to not do something you know you need to do, the Bible says is a sin. And when we confess our sins before the Lord, we must confess those we've committed and those we've just omitted in our life. And so confession is nothing more than agreeing with God about your sin. A fourth characteristic is faith. Nehemiah here, he confessed the sin, but he also exercised faith in what God had said and what God had done. We go to verse 8 again. He, he begins to, to, to lay before the Lord his faith of confe- his confession of faith. Lord, remember the word that you've spoken there in Deuteronomy 4. I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcasts in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. What is Nehemiah doing? He's laying his faith before the Lord. God, we've sinned. Yes, I'm acknowledging that. I'm owning that. But based upon your word, Lord, I believe that you will forgive us. I believe that you will receive us back to yourself. I'm trusting in your mercy. I'm trusting in your love. By faith, he's coming before the Lord. By faith, he's trusting in the Lord. And a fifth characteristic is action. See, Nehemiah did not wallow in a prolonged introspective examination of his failures. Oh, he was praying for four years. Part of that prayer is what we'll get to next week as we move into chapter 2 and, and, and we'll see this action further play out. But he's not wallowing in this 
prolonged introspective examination of how terrible a person is. No, he confesses it to the Lord. He lays it before the Lord. He trusts in the forgiveness of the Lord. And then he stands up and walks in that forgiveness. He lives and resides and presides in the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of Almighty God. He owned his sins. But then he began to move in the direction of God. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, and give success to your servant today. We're kind of seeing a little addendum here as he's been praying for four months. Now we get to the conclusion of this four months, and he's about to go to the king. An opportunity is about to present itself. So what is Nehemiah doing? He's walking in the grace and the forgiveness of God. He's moving to the Lord. And so with a biblical understanding of the character of God and, and what repentance is, let me share with you how one should respond in re- repentance. Three things here this morning. And I know there's like 17 points, but uh, I went quickly. Not so quickly. Move toward God, number one. How do we respond in repentance? Move toward God. Verse four. As, I, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah does something here that's not natural to humanity. This is not natural human instinct post the fall. You see, man's, man's natural response when confronted with their own sin is to do what? Hide and cover it up. Right? I want to fix myself, and I want to get as far away from that holy God as I possibly can. That's what we saw in Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3, they've been in wonderful communion with the Father. They sinned by eating this fruit that they were forbidden to touch, or, or I should say to eat. And all of a sudden, they see their shameful state. What is their natural response? I'm going to fix myself by making coverings, and I'm also going to hide from God when he comes in my presence. And man's been doing that ever since then. From Genesis 3 till today... Our natural human response is to try to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and to hide from a holy God. And that, that's not Nehemiah's response here. Nehemiah models for us a better approach to sin. See, when he learned of this shameful state of his people, Nehemiah moves toward God. He sat down before God. He weeps over the sin. He expresses brokenness for this sin. He knocked, out, he knocked repeatedly at the door of God. Because he understood there's no one for for whom to return except the Lord. He knew there's no one else to go to for help. He couldn't fix the problem. Religion couldn't fix the problem. He couldn't look to the government to fix the problem. He couldn't look to his family to fix the problem. Only God could fix the problem and remove the shame from his life and from his people's lives. So Nehemiah, what does he do? He moves toward God. And this morning, you may be walking at a guilty distance, and this morning the Holy Spirit is beginning to reveal sin in your life. What is your natural response? What should it be? Move to the Lord. Don't try to cover it up. Don't rationalize it. Don't say, well, I'll try better. I'm going to create some more disciplines in my life. No. Move to God, and then move to the second thing. And that is be honest about any and all sin. Be honest about it. Don't sugarcoat it. Be honest about your sin. What does Nehemiah say? We have acted very corruptly. We've acted very corruptly against you 
and have not kept the commandments. Who, who's, what is he saying here? He's saying, God, we've been absolutely wicked, and it's not been against anybody but you. We have sinned against a holy God, and the judgment we've been under, we deserve. God, it is exactly what we deserve because we have sinned against an infinite, sovereign, holy God. So what he here confess every sin. He left nothing in the closet because he hated the sin and he hated the damage it created. He was, going to be, he was willing to do anything and everything to be rid of it. I love what Josh Everett said. He said, no man ever enters heaven until he is first convinced that he deserves hell. And that's what we do when we share the gospel with people. You've got to help them understand that they're lost and they're under the judgment of God. Otherwise, they'll never come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. you go got to help them understand that they're an enemy of God. They're a hater of God. They deserve the sinner's devil's hell because they are in rebellion against God. And this morning, if you're holding on to any sort of sin, you deserve the fire of hell. But you can be forgiven of all sin if you will come to Jesus Christ. So how do you do that? You confess any and all sin. You're honest about your sin. You confess it to the Lord. And then thirdly, trust God for forgiveness. You trust God for forgiveness. As Nehemiah here calls upon God to remember and honor his word there in Deuteronomy 4, he is placing his trust in God for forgiveness. He says, Lord, remember what you've said. Uh, If you sin, I'll scatter you. But if you return, I will bring you back to myself. Trusting God for forgiveness. This is what the Bible is all about. I mean, the meta-narrative, the grand story of Scripture is redemption. This book here is not a history book in and of itself so that we can know what happened during the days of the Jews. It's not a a leadership book to teach us how to be a better leader or, or whatever the principles we may pull from it. This book, by and large, is about redemption. This book is about you understanding that you're a sinner in rebellion against God, but that holy, righteous, lovable God is loving you, and he's loving you back to himself, calling you back to himself. So trust him for forgiveness. The Apostle John said there in 1 John 1, 9, if we will confess our sins, He, Jesus, He, God, is faithful to, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So a repentant respond, response agrees with God about our sin. It also agrees with God that He stands ready to forgive and to cleanse us from all sin. There at Pentecost, when the people... In Jerusalem, who heard the gospel message that Peter was proclaiming, when they heard all of that, they repented of their sin. They moved toward God. They were honest about their sin. They trusted in Jesus for forgiveness. I mean, the one that they had crucified just a matter of weeks before is now the one they're placing their faith in for forgiveness. And this same pattern is the pattern we see in the life of Nehemiah here in chapter 1 as he lays before the Lord and fasts before the Lord and bears his soul before the Lord. It's the same pattern that ought to be true in your life and in my life and in our church. Pattern of repentance. As we are honest about our sin, we lay them before the Lord and we rest in His forgiveness. And so this morning, you may be walking at a guilty distance. You may be a Christian, a believer in relationship with Jesus, but your relationship is not real close because there's sin in the house. This morning, the only thing you need to do is to repent of that sin, trust in the forgiveness, and receive that into your life. I'm telling you right now, I remember the day I I got saved. I remember that day like it was yesterday. The conviction that I felt because for the first time in my life, even as a religious guy, I understood the weight of my sin and how it hung on me like 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 a boulder. 
And that moment, and I gave my life to Jesus. And I'm not a mystical dude. I don't live in the realm of the subjective. I live in the black and white objective side of life. That's just the way I'm wired. But I remember just feeling the lift and the freedom that I experienced the moment I said yes to Jesus. The moment. Today, you're burdened down because of the sin in your life. You want to be free from it, but you're not willing to go to what links need to be gone to. You're not willing to confess it and be rid of it, but you need to this morning. Jesus stands ready to forgive. Perhaps this morning you're not in relationship with Jesus and you're like I was there. Uh, maybe a religious person. Maybe you're uh, not religious at all, but today you're beginning to understand I, I need a relationship with Jesus Christ. He stands ready to forgive you of all sin. All you have to do is move toward him because he's moving towards you right now. Move to the Lord, confess your sin, and receive that forgiveness. A wonderful story that we see here in Nehemiah is that at the beginning of this restoration, this movement to restore the people of God to their homeland, we see confession taking place, and we see them getting right spiritually so that then they can get right in all the other realms of their life, relational, financial, even in government. As they're getting their hearts right with the Lord, everything else falls into place. So just a moment, I'm going to pray and we're going to move into a, a time of response. We're going to continue to worship. I'm, I'm going to encourage you to come forward if that's something. Maybe make this altar a, a place for you to just kind of do business with the Lord. But we're going to sing. We're going to sing in response to the Word of God. We're going to sing in response to the gospel this morning. But if you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'll be available up here. I'll be singing and worshiping here at this front pew. Maybe you need to pray with somebody. Come find me. Find one of our elders. But you do business with the Lord today as we worship the Lord. And so join me in prayer. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak. But more than anything, let's ask the Holy Spirit to open our ears and our hearts this morning. Father, we love you and thank you for what you have done for us. God, we acknowledge this morning, like Nehemiah acknowledged here in Nehemiah chapter 1, that God, we are sinful people. We have rejected your command so many times. God, our nature is sin. Our, our nature is rebellion. God, we are born like that. It's not something we learn. It's not something we pick up from others. God, it is who we are. Lord, we celebrate the cross this morning. We celebrate the blood that was shed there. We celebrate an empty tomb. We celebrate the resurrected life. God, we ask that that would be true of us, that we would experience a resurrected life, that we would be born again. And so many of us in this room have been born again. God, this morning, may we cherish that new life that we've been given. God, help us to live in the new life. Lord, I pray for the believer in this room who's walking at a guilty distance, that there's sin in their life, there's unconfessed sin. Lord Jesus, I pray that they would go to the lengths necessary to rid themselves of that sin. God, we've seen it in the text this morning. If we'll confess, you will forgive. And God, you will cleanse. So Lord, this morning, I pray that every one of us would do some soul searching as we sing this responsive song. And Holy Spirit, may you be a searchlight and may you identify any and all sin. And God, help us to be honest about it. To confess it before you. Lord, if you tap on our shoulder and tell us to go and confess that sin with someone else I pray that we'd be so bold and so obedient that we'd go and do that 
Lord, I pray for the lost person, a man, woman, teenager, a child in here this morning that needs to give their life to Jesus. May that be true of them today. Lord, I inhabit the praise of your people as we sing in response to your word this morning, as we celebrate the life that you've given us. Would you lead us? Would you direct us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.